So as we jump into today's passage and this morning's message, I wonder if you would just pretend with me for a couple moments. Pretend with me that you and I have a couple little small businesses together. And uh, we're doing a little bit of money making on the side, outside of the nine to five, Monday through Friday, and outside of what I do on Sunday morning. I do work Monday through Friday as well, I want you to know that, in case anyone wondered. (laughs) Outside of that, we have a little money making business on the side. And one of them is this, Uh, On Sunday mornings after church, in the lobby way, you can come to us at a little table that we have set up where we're selling crosses and candy and sweet corn. And um, business goes really well when the sermon is good that morning. When the sermon is more of a lemon, business is down a bit. But overall, the messages of this church are pretty good. And so um, we've been doing pretty well with our business on Sunday morning. And on a Sunday-to-Sunday basis, we're making one of these together. Kind of nice. That's our first pretend business. Pretend with me. Now, number two, we also have, in addition, this payday loan business down in rural Arkansas. And for whatever reason, in rural Arkansas right now, the rents are really high. And most people are making a minimum wage. They're they're having difficulty making their rents on a month-to-month basis. And so fortunately, we have this payday loan company that can come in and help them make rent at the end of the month And then we get to charge 400% interest over the course of a year to these unsuspecting poor little folks, and we are riding that all the way to a brand new Beamer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Business is good for us right now. Or perhaps you got this third little business that you have something going on the side, and maybe it's an insurance business or real estate or whatever it might be. And Sunday mornings are fine with the messages and the ministries and the music. That's all fine. But the, the, the main reason that you come to church, the main reason that I come to church on Sunday morning is to hand out my business cards. To find as many people as possible that I could perhaps give them one of my business cards and do a little bit more business networking in the hopes of building up my brand. You know what I'm saying? We're building up our brand and hopefully building up our business in the process here on Sunday morning. Okay, that's pretend, obviously. But that's the kind of thing that Jesus is going to confront this morning in John chapter 2. That he comes to the temple, and he would come to that kind of thing even today, and he would say, give me your business card. And he would say, okay, this little... 400% interest payday loan business where you're getting rich on the backs of poor folk. And okay, this little $100 that you're making each week out in the lobby way after the services end. This is what I think of those. This is what Jesus would do as we look at today's passage in John chapter 2. These are the kinds of things that he is confronting as he goes into the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus is back in Jerusalem once again, now for the Passover feast. Last week, Jordan did a superb job with the message. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that, please go back and listen to that message from last week, as he talked about how Jesus came and he fulfilled the ceremonial washing ceremonies of the Jewish religion of the day. That he takes those 
Jewish ceremonial washing jars filled with water as they were, and he turns them into wine for a great wedding celebration, and he fulfills that whole ceremonial festival of the washing ceremony, the baptismal Old Testament ceremony. He says, that's just, 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 it's, it's not needed anymore. It's not needed anymore. And so also today what he's going to do is he's going to the temple in Jerusalem and he's saying, the temple's not going to be needed anymore. You say, the sacrifice system, all of that is going to be gone. It's not going to be needed anymore either. And he does away with that as well. Now you got to understand that Jews of the day and still today, they love to celebrate. God actually commanded Jews many times in the Old Testament to celebrate because they had been through such pain again and again and again. If you look at Jewish history, you see so much incredible pain. And so God oftentimes invites them, commands them even, to celebrate all different kinds of festivals to remember what they had been through and to remember how God had delivered them. It's wise for us to celebrate also. As Jordan noted last week, the wedding feast was a great celebration in Jewish culture, a week-long celebration. But there was no celebration, there was no feast or festival in the entire Jewish calendar that was as big as the Passover feast and celebration. It was huge back then in Jesus' day, and it continues to be a really large element in Jewish culture today. Passover, as you probably know, is celebrated each and every spring. It retells the story of the Exodus in which Israelites were in slavery in Egypt for the course of many, many years, and their cries go up to God, and God hears their cries, and he sees their tears, and he's moved with compassion to them, and he acts on their behalf. And there's this back and forth, as you know, between Moses and Pharaoh across some time in which God brings about a whole bunch of miracles, but Pharaoh will not relent and allow the Israelites to go and to be released from their slavery. And so God eventually says, finally says, enough is enough. This is what you're going to do, Moses. You're going to tell the Israelite people to take the blood of the lamb and take it like a paintbrush over the doorpost of your home. And this angel of death is going to come through the camps in Egypt. And when the angel sees the blood of the lamb over your doorposts, it will pass by those doors. And sure enough, the angel passed over, Passover, passed over the Israelite doorpost, but it didn't pass over the Egyptian doorposts. The angel of death came to them. And in anguish, Pharaoh finally releases the Israelites who flee to Mount Sinai and flee into the desert wilderness and ultimately to the promised land. And Passover is a celebration of all of that. It's a celebration of the seminal event in Jewish history. It's like July 4th plus the Emancipation Proclamation all rolled up into one. That's what they experienced there with the release out of Egypt. But in case you didn't know, folks are really, really good 
at turning religious holidays into big business. Did you know that? Have you noticed it all? Religious holidays can become big, big business. It's true today, and it was true back then as well. And so by the time Jesus walks onto the scene, he comes to the temple in Jerusalem, the Passover feast had become really big business in which poor folks were coming from all over to purchase a sacrificial lamb or a dove or some other animal for their Passover feast and as a worship unto God, and it had become a really big business. Now, as a good Jewish man, Jesus is likewise going into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. He's going to celebrate it just like his fellow Jews are doing, but it becomes a pretty unsettling journey for some of those who are watching and listening to his message With that, listen to the story here in John chapter 2, starting at verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all of them from the temple courts both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and it still wasn't complete. It would take another 38 years for the temple to be completed in all of its entirety with the gates and the walls all around the temple. It was huge, over three football fields in size by the time it was completed. The temple he had spoken of was not that temple, it was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Let's read. Let's uh, let's pray together as we jump into this. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that it's able to challenge us. It's able to confront us. It's able to convict us, and it's able to comfort us. There's probably something different from this passage for each person in this room and for those watching online today, and we ask, God, that you would speak to us. Teach us from your word that we would learn what you have for us, that we would begin to apply it to our lives, that we would not just see this as ink on paper, but something that is significant for us to apply even this week. We trust ourselves to you. We thank you for this time to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, is this your portrait of Jesus? Is this your Sunday morning portrait of Jesus with church clothes on? No. This is not Jesus meek and mild, is it? This is Jesus bold and 
wild. He is intense. And he's bringing it to the temple on this occasion. You know, it's really interesting. Uh, John places this scene at the beginning of his gospel, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke place it at the end of their gospels. They're both offering historical biographies of Jesus. It's possible that John places it here for theological reasons that just as Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial washing system, John is now telling us Jesus also fulfills the temple with the sacrifice system. That's possible. Other scholars tell us that more likely, Jesus actually cleanses the temple two times. That he's serious enough about this that quite possibly he goes into the temple in Jerusalem and cleans it out at the beginning of his ministry And then goes out again three years later and cleans it out at the end of his ministry. Jesus is not boring, okay? Jesus is not weak. He is not mild. Now, there are many people that I know, including especially many men, who find the Christian faith to be boring. And and they say, you know, there's no real adventure. There's very little passion in it. Well, you need to read more of Jesus if that's what you think. Because he was not boring. He was not tame. Many people today, including many churches, have tamed him, but he was not tame. He didn't get crucified for being tame. He didn't get crucified for being safe. He got crucified because he was too dangerous to the authorities. I love the way Dorothy Sayers, a beautiful author, has put it. She says, we have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah and certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Those who knew him, however, objected to him as a dangerous firebrand. Jesus brings it. But the question remains, what's going on here? Why is he going up to these cages and freeing these doves and picking up a a whip, making a a whip out of reeds that he finds in the limestone stone on the floor of the temple, fashioning it into a whip and shooing away the cattle and the sheep and all of that and coming over to the money changers with their cashier desks and flipping up the side of those temples such that, flipping up the side of those tables such that shekels are flying in the air. Well, why is he doing that? He's doing it because he sees that his father's house has been turned into a place of business. This worship temple, this place where worship is supposed to happen, has been turned into a place of commerce. And he is moved to his very core with a righteous kind of anger for purity of worship, for justice to be occurring in any house of worship. You see, pilgrims would scrape together their pennies to make this very long journey, sometimes 100, even 150 miles, to celebrate the Passover, only to find out when they got to the temple that they didn't have enough money to purchase a sacrifice for their Passover feast because there was an upcharge and there was a requirement that the people would purchase these unblemished, perfect animals in which the temple priests were getting a profit back, in which the Pharisees were getting a profit back, and the merchants who were selling them also were getting a profit. And so people came and they were 
they, they didn't have what it took to purchase the sacrifice that they needed. All the while, people are getting wealthy on their very limited means. Now, this is not about the church receiving an offering to pay its bills or to, fil- to facilitate its ministries or to care for its building needs. It's none of those things. It's not about you or I earning a decent living. It's not even about selling animals over at PetSmart. Okay, it's none of those things. That's not what this passage is about. It's about Jesus' zeal for purity in the house of God. It's about a concern over unjust gain. And it's about using God for one's own power or profit. You see, economic justice is a really big deal to God. If you wonder about that, I encourage you to read your Bible carefully, particularly in the Old Testament. You see that economic justice is a huge deal to God. There was a law in the Old Testament stated on a number of different occasions that interest was prohibited on behalf of the lendee. So the lender could not charge interest to the lendee. It was the lender who had the financial wealth. That was the one who had all the assets. If a poor person came to, that per- came to the lender and asked for a loan, they were prohibited by God from ever charging that poor lendee any interest at all. Could you imagine? Like, could you imagine that you go to your local car dealership and they say no interest ever all the time? This is like a Dave Ramsey dream. <laughs> Nobody is getting poor on compounded interest. There is no credit card debt. There's none of that going on. This was the standard practice. And yet, notice the ironies of what's happening in this passage at the Passover feast as impoverished folks are coming down and they're being upcharged so that they could worship, so that they could celebrate the greatest of all Hebrew celebrations. The ironies are stunning. You got to notice in this passage that nobody argues with Jesus about what he has done. Look at verse 17. His disciples remembered when he does all this, when he upturns the money in the temple and the tables are flipped over, his disciples just remember, oh yeah, it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Oh yeah, it's Jesus. It's the Messiah. This is the one that was spoken of repeatedly in the Old Testament, that he would have a zeal for his father's house. He'd be consumed with passion for his father's house. There he is. He is so good. But they don't object to what he's doing. As intense as it is, they don't object. Even going above verse 18, the Jews, presumably some leaders in the audience here who are watching him, then responded to Jesus, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? They don't say that what he is doing is wrong. They just ask for a sign to prove that he has authority to do it. There's nobody who's watching all this except for perhaps the money changers and maybe the temple priests who are getting their kickbacks. They're objecting to what Jesus is doing as wrong. They all recognize that what is happening in the temple and what has developed over these years is wrong. It's just that nobody had the courage 
to stand up for what was right until Jesus came. And then he was the one who had the courage to say, this ain't happening on my watch. I'm standing up for what is right. This is Jesus. This is who he is. He's so good. He's not weak. He's not soft. He's strong. It would be like going to the casino and watching someone get intense and they flip a casino table over and the chips fly all over the place. And if you were the casino owner, you'd be ticked off. But if you were someone watching on and you know that you lost all of your savings at the casino table and you know that behind the scenes the house always wins and it does the house always wins you'd be cheering and that's what's happening they're cheering that Jesus is doing this now we need to be careful here that we don't see Jesus flying off the handle or getting red hot getting white hot, being filled with rage. Those are all human terms, and that's not what's going on well with Jesus. He is angry here, but he has a righteous anger here. For me personally, when I get angry, I tend to sin. I think generally, for most humans, the simple truth is, when we get angry, we tend to also be in sin. And the reason for that is we tend to get angry because our rights were affronted. And so we start to get selfish, and we start to get prideful, and we start to get really defensive, and that's the seat of our anger. Not always, but oftentimes. Jesus' anger was not like that. Jesus' anger was this clean, righteous anger. He sees that something wrong is happening. Zeal for the Father's house consumes him. He doesn't want his Father's house by being used as a place of commerce, and he's angry with that in a clean and beautiful sense. The place for worship had been turned into a place for profit, and so he's going to do something about it. Now again, the question asked is, how did he have such authority? And the reason Jesus had such authority is he was always doing what his father gave him to do. Okay, and as we go through the book of John over these next months, you're going to see this common refrain from Jesus, I only do what my Father has given me to do. I live my life in submission to the Father. I only say the words that the Father gives me to say. I only do the actions that the Father gives me to do. So I'm never operating out of my own accord. I'm always operating in submission to my Father. That's why I have the authority to do the things that I am doing. Because of that authority, because of his connection to the Father, he really didn't care much about other people's opinions of him, did he? Here's the big idea that you got to hold on to though this morning. The more rooted you are in God's directions for you, the less you'll be swayed by human opinions of you. Say that out loud with me. Let's all repeat it together. The more rooted you are in God's directions for you, the less you'll be swayed by human opinions of you. This was true of Christ, and this can be true of us. The more we are centered in what God says, the less we end up caring what other people say. The more we are centered in what God wants to do in our lives, what God wants to do through us, the less we will come 
to peer pressure. The more ruined we are in what God wants done, the less we will ultimately be under even our family's authority, our life group's authority, any friend's authority. We say, I stand with God. I want to do your will, oh God. I'm never going to be prideful about this. It's not about me. It's all about you. But I refuse groupthink. I refuse to be swayed by the opinions of others. Instead, I will move with the directions of God. This is what happens naturally in the human soul as you lean into God daily. And here's what courage does. Courage allows you to practice all the other virtues. If you don't have courage, you can practice the other virtues that you would like be it love or sacrifice or generosity or humility, you can practice those occasionally and inconsistently. But if you do have courage, you can practice all of those consistently. You can live with integrity because you have courage in submission to God. You can live a life of generosity because God gives you courage to hold all that he has given lightly. You can live a life of love for neighbor because God gives you the courage to love your neighbor no matter who they are, no matter what they believe, no matter their lifestyle, you can love them. You can live a life of courage sexually no matter what other people do or no matter what pressures you might experience because you know that God is strong when you are personally weak. We grow in courage as we lean into God and we follow his directions for us. We need courage to follow Christ for all he wants us to do in this world. And I would say today, perhaps more than any other time in my life, certainly more than any other time in my ministry, Christians need courage. Christians need humility and courage. Humility to love people right where they are, not to believe that you're in any way superior to anyone. And courage to stand on the convictions that God has given to you from his word, no matter the cost. I love the way Billy Graham put it. He said, courage is contagious. It is. When a brave man or woman takes a stand, other people's backs are stiffened. Have you had this experience? That you see someone who is brave, you see someone who takes a courageous stand, someone who refuses groupthink, you see someone who stands for righteousness then goes against the crowd. What it inevitably does, it helps you to stand stronger. This is exactly the disciples' experience. They were wishy-washy, but after following Jesus for over three years, they proceeded to give their lives for Jesus. They grew encouraged by being in his presence, receiving his grace, seeing his example of courage. Now, how does all this apply to us? How does this kind of scary and passionate and intense passage of Jesus turn over the temple? How does it apply to us today? I want to give you two ways. The first one is this. We are told through this passage never, ever, ever to use God for power or profit. We don't ever use God for our own power or profit. You never manipulate someone else in the name of God. 
You allow the word of God to speak as it is. I was talking to Pastor Todd Marcy, and he shared with me that when he was in college, not UNK, when he was in college, he was in a business class, and the professor told the business school, the kids in this class, that if you choose to go into real estate or insurance, you, you really must become a member of a local church. Why, they asked. It's not about the church. He could care less about the church. It was about the networking that would come through the church. Okay, again, Jesus would tear that stuff out. Or how about the prosperity gospel? You know what that is? Would you raise your hand if you know what the prosperity gospel is? Okay, good. Most of you don't. Amen. The prosperity gospel, you see a whole lot of on TV. You watch much TV preachers and you will see the prosperity gospel. And you will quickly identify it by this basic message. You give to God and then God will multiply that and give you more. And so the reason that you would give $100 to God is that he would give you two or $300 back. Okay, and that has more to do with New Age religion than it does with biblical Christianity. This idea that you speak to the universe and the universe gives back to you in return far more. We do not give to God in order to get back anything from God. We give to God because God in his grace gives us the gift of generosity lest it would corrode our souls. We give to God because God has given us the grace of generosity such that we could be a part of missions across the world that more of the world would know. We give to God such that we could be a part of helping the hurting in our own community for the praise and honor of God and for the good of those individuals. We give to God because we really care about the mission of God in this community. We give to God because he has given 100% of all that we have. Okay, this is why we give to God, not to get anything in return. I mean, it's so cheap when you hear these things on television, give so you get something in return. I remember watching one, I'm not kidding, that this guy said, you can buy this prayer shawl from me through this TV deal for $99.99 and I will pray over that prayer shawl for you. Then you'll receive it and God will multiply it in your home. Plus shipping and handling. Listen, that's from the pit of hell, right? Let's say that. From the pit of hell. Send that back where it belongs, okay? We never, ever use God for power or profit. God doesn't serve us. We serve him. He is not our butler. He does not do our bidding. We serve him. Second, Connect more to God, and you will inevitably connect more to courage. Friends, you don't have to just gin up courage. You don't have to just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and say, I'm going to be a more courageous person, though, this week. You connect more to God, and then courage will be built in you. Because this is a virtue that comes out of the beautiful character of Jesus, and God has given us the Holy Spirit who now dwells in us. And through that Holy Spirit, we grow in these virtues, including a sound mind and self-discipline and not timidity, but courage instead. And courage is built over time. Slowly but surely, your courage can be built. When you say no to peer pressure, for example, in order to follow Christ more fully, young people, when you say no to peer pressure in order to follow Christ, you will build your courage. Old people. Yes. Old people. 
When you say no to peer pressure, when you say no to groupthink, in order to build your courage, in order to say yes to God, it, it, it'll build. It'll grow, I promise. You gotta fight for it. You gotta ask God for help with it. Let me give a couple more examples. When people you love are ranting about archaic conservatives and crazy liberals, and they're doing a hot take, which is all about them. It's always all, whenever someone does a hot take, it's always about them. When people you know are, are given a hot take and they're ranting, you have a choice in that moment. Say nothing, go along with it, or gently say something. And if you gently, lovingly say, how can we talk about this issue in a more profitable manner? That will build your courage. And other people will take notice that you're different. Or you're in the workplace, or you're at school, and people are gossiping about her. Oh, you know her. And you say, how can we speak about her lovingly? You choose not to add to that gossip. You choose to gently speak into that. Yeah, you'll, you'll be seen as different, for sure, in a good way. And some people might reject you, but that's okay. Because the more you're directed by God's directions for you, the less you are swayed by human opinions of you. It's okay to be rejected by people. You stand up against that stuff. When you're reading the Bible and you see that it is reading you, and so you choose to say yes to God's will for you, no matter what other people might think of you, this builds courage. The more rooted we are in God's directions for us, the less we will care about human opinions of us. Now, fortunately, again, we don't have to do this on our own. God gives us courage, and we see it here as we look toward Easter week. Take note of what Jesus foreshadows for us in this passage, and we'll wrap it up with this. Verse 19, he says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They're asking, what authority do you have? And he says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. To which they say, don't you know, it's taken four, Herod 46 years to, to build this temple, and 18,000 men have been working on this temple full time for the last 46 years. It's now over three football fields in size, and there's those limestone bricks that are three to four tons each, and you're going to destroy it and build it back up in three days? And he replies to them, the temple he had spoken of, the Bible says the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. And so Jesus fulfills all that he said that he would do. He wasn't talking about the physical temple. He's talking about the fact that he was the fullness of God. He is fully God, fully man. And all the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form in Jesus. And he said, God himself is going to the grave for you, and he will rise again on the third day for you, and the temple of God will ultimately be no more. And you can count on this. And then, hold on to that thought. He goes a step further by giving us his spirit when he ascends to heaven 
And where is the temple now? Help me now, Bible scholars. Where is the temple now? It's in you. It's not this church. It's not the temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem is no more. It's no other physical house of worship. It's you and me. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6, you'll see up on the screen. You are a temple. You are a temple. You are a temple. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are bought at a price, the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, go and honor God with your body because it's a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Friends, Jesus fulfills the entirety of the temple with all of its rules and its regulations. He's the final sacrifice that climbed up that old rugged cross for you to take on your sins, to bring us to God, and we'll celebrate it next week. It's going to be an awesome celebration. And he doesn't stop there. He decides to make you and me his temple such that he gives us the Holy Spirit, and through the Holy Spirit, we don't have a spirit of fear. We have a spirit of boldness and courage to follow him against the winds of this culture. God is for you. God is in you. His Holy Spirit is alive and well. You trust in him, and you will act with courage this week. Amen? Amen? So, Father, help us. Help us to rest in you, to trust in your word for us, to trust not in our own authority, to care very little about human opinions of us. As the Bible tells us again and again, the fear of man is a trap, but those who trust in the Lord are kept safe. Oh, Father, help us to trust in you. Help us to trust in your good directions for us and to care much less about any human opinions of us. Would you grow us in courage? Lord, we're so grateful that we don't follow a Savior who is weak. We don't follow a Savior who is meek and mild. We follow one who is strong and emotionally deep and gets passionate and has a righteous anger for justice to prevail and for his house to be a house of worship. God, I'm asking that that would be true of this church. First, I ask that for this building, that this would be a house of prayer and worship, that we would worship each, each week here on Sundays and, and during the week as well, on Sunday nights and, and Wednesday nights, Monday nights, various ministries that happen here. We would worship with zeal, caring very little for the thoughts and opinions of man. We would worship with zeal. And I prayed even more for all my friends here in this room and all those watching online that in our hearts, because we are the temple of God, we would worship with zeal this coming week. In anticipation of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, God, we want to be set apart. We want to worship with a zeal that is righteous, that we realize you are who you say you are, Lord Jesus, and you're worthy of all of our devotion. We love you, God. Please prepare our hearts for this week to come. Help us to grow in courage as we follow you. We'll be careful to give you all glory. In Jesus' name, amen.